Well, I hope all of you are having a wonderful History Hump Day on this Wednesday. This little podcast is called A History Most Queer. Here, I, your host, Julian Rushbrook, endeavor to journey into the past to uncover those persons and stories that make up our shared LGBTQIA plus history that was probably left out of your history books. All this month, we are celebrating the trans folk of this beautiful, spinning, blue-green planet. By looking at various figures in history that could very well have identified as transgender if you did a bit of timey-wimey magic and brought them to our present day. It can often be difficult to truly pin some of these people down, as concepts like homosexuality, transgender, or asexuality uh, are fairly recent Uh, events, historically speaking, but add a level of context to our understanding of the wonderful variety of the human condition. The past two weeks have had us looking at historical figures, but with today's episode, I thought we might look instead to a kind of queer deity who finds himself being highly revered by trans folk in the Hindu faith. His name is Erevan, or Erevan. He is seen as a patron god to the Elise and Hijra communities in not only his local Tamil region, but throughout South Asia and the broader global Hindu diaspora. So if you have a copy of the Mahabharata on hand, you might want to pull it down from the shelf because it is in this document that we will learn about this trans-friendly deity. The Mahabharata is one of two great Sanskrit epics, the other being the Ramayana, that are veritable backbones of Hinduism in ancient India. For those who are not familiar with these epics, think of them as being similar to the Greek epics of the Iliad or the Odyssey, or ancient Mesopotamia's epic story of Gilgamesh. Like the Iliad, the Mahabharata details an ancient war, the Kurukshetra War, which is situated somewhere in the 10th century BCE. There is some evidence of this being a historical event, and the story of the Mahabharata uses the events of the war as a backdrop for the epic drama. The story tells us of a great conflict for the throne of the kingdom of Kuru, the capital of which is Hastinapura. The city is located in the state of Uttar Pradesh in the north of modern-day India. It's Ending begins the current age of humanity in which we, dear listeners, find ourselves. Two rival families, the Korova, descendants of the ancient king Kuru, whom many of the main characters in the tale are descended from, and the Pandava, who are five brothers also descended from king Kuru. These rivals for Kuru's throne are in some fashion or other demigods so their powers on Earth are often greater than your average human being. As I mentioned before, these rival clans are related, which, if you have ever cracked a history book, is pretty common a theme in human history. 
Everyone wants to sit on the fancy chair and wear the biggest hat, it seems. Well, it was decided that the kingdom should be split in two, so as to avoid any civil war. As will come as no surprise to anyone listening, that split did not work. So, the five Pandava brothers meet this lovely princess, Dropadi. She is said to be beautiful, after all. Does any epic tale have a princess who's dowdy? She's also courageous. These brothers are smitten, and so they all five marry her. Yep, she's all about that polyamorous life. I'm not sure, though, if having five husbands is a plus or a minus. I mean, are these brothers doing their fair share of chores around the house? It seems like it could be a bit of a headache, but I digress. Now, the first of the brothers that won her affection was Arjuna. Due to a little misunderstanding, she had to wed his four other brothers. I feel that better communication may have been needed in this situation. Arjuna, by the way, is the father of our Iravan. He is also, along with Drupodi, the main protagonist in the whole story. Now, as I mentioned before, he is semi-divine, so he was blessed with being the finest archer in the world. Likewise, he had a pretty good relationship with his cousin and best friend, the blue-skinned god Krishna, who is himself a manifestation of the god Vishnu. Krishna helped his bestie Arjuna by giving him moral instruction from the Bhagavad Gita. If you have watched the new Oppenheimer film, you will be familiar with one of the quotes from that scripture. Um, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. These are less, there are less ominous sounding quotes from this document, I can assure you. But this one is having a moment with Killian Murphy right now. So back to the father of Irvon. Now, Arjuna and his brothers had to figure out how best to work this polyamorous relationship out with their shared wife. It was decided that each one would have time with her, but the others would have to stay away and leave them alone. If one of the brothers entered into the rooms where the two spouses were residing, then he would find himself exiled to the forest for 12 years. This unusual arrangement was pretty straightforward. Just keep to yourself when it's your brother's turn with Princess Drapaudi, and then everything would be golden. As I'm sure you're already guessing, this is an epic tale of battle and divine consequences, so you already know that this is an arrangement that's going to get totally fucked up. One day, some robbers were just hanging around and doing roguish things, like stealing some cattle from a brahmin or priest. The brahmin was distraught, so he went to the Pandava brothers to get some help in retrieving his stolen animals. This blasphemy angered the middle brother, our man Arjuna. He needed to grab his weapons and deal with these ne'er-do-wells quickly to bring order back to the kingdom. There was just one little snag in the details of serving out justice. You see, today was the time when his brother, Yudhishthira, was spending time with their wife. Those weapons that he needed to take on the robbers with were in the room with his brother and wife. What was he to do? 
Well, his honor demanded that he help the Brahmin, consequences be damned. So, he snuck in the forbidden chamber to snatch the weaponry, but was of course caught by his brother. He refused to be turned away, knowing full well that he would be exiled now. He had to help the Brahmin, and so he had to pay the price for breaking the rules. I'm not quite sure why this brother could not just go and grab the weapons for him. Likewise, why could the siblings have all not just sat down and agreed that this one infraction was justified? But we would not have this story if his brothers were a little more helpful. So, he finds himself exiled to the Great Forest with his cousin Krishna as a companion. Now, I forgot to mention one other aspect of this fraternal marriage agreement. Namely, that if and when a co-husband slash brother was exiled, he had to be completely celibate. Yep, there were always a few catches in these ancient epics. Of course, that means that Arjuna was going to find celibacy a difficult thing to maintain in the wilderness. In fact, he would meet a few people during this expulsion that kept him from standing firm to that rule. It is strange that he could not be talked out of exiling himself in the woods, but it seemed that a chance at some sexy time broke down all of his scruples. Now, the first woman to win his heart and get into those exiled pants was a warrior princess, Ulopi. She was the daughter of the Naga king, Koravaya, the ruler of the underwater kingdom of serpents. She's often de depicted as having the upper body of a human woman, but the lower body is that of an enormous snake tail. The two met while Arjuna was bathing in the Ganges River. The princess grabs him and drags him to the underwater serpent kingdom. When the two arrive, the princess, who could not contain her desire upon just seeing the bathing archer, decides to learn a little bit about the guy, and vice versa. I mean, who would not be curious about a snake woman who nearly drowned you? There is a Naga of the name of Kuravaya, born in the line of Aravata. I am O Prince the daughter of that Koravaya, and my name is Ulapi. O oh, tiger among men, beholding you descend into the stream to perform your abulations, I was deprived of reason by the god of desire. O oh, sinless one, I am still unmarried, afflicted as I am by the god of desire on account of you. O oh, you of Kuru's race, Gratify me today by giving thyself up to me. So the snake princess was pretty thirsty for Arjuna. Now, I joked a bit earlier about how he did not fight to uphold that celibacy, but he actually did. A little. He had to turn down this princess Ulupi. After all, he explained that he was already married and filled her in on the situation and the story of his exile. That story did not hold much water for the Naga princess, and she explained that the exile was supposed to have been done to the wife, Drupaudi, and not to the brothers. Now, you and I, dear listener, are probably not buying this. After all, why on earth 
would the wife have to go into exile for the screw-up of one of her husbands? That is where you and I are probably better judges of character and honesty than Arjuna. He was immediately convinced by the snake princess's argument and marries her then and there. Of course, that marriage was consummated. As I mentioned before, snake girl was thirsty. She would soon find herself pregnant with a baby boy, whom she would name Iravon. Yep, that is how we get to the crux of our story today. A silver-tongued underwater princess convinces a demigod, with a line or two of dialogue, to forsake his wedding vows and do the dirty with her. To help protect her husband and the father of her son, Ulupi makes the man impervious to all underwater creatures that might try to assail him. Irivan will become a very important deity in the Tamil region, but first, we have to go into his story. Now, the young Irivan would end up being raised in the Naga city of Nagaloka under the protection of his mother. His father, Arjuna, would be off to continue his penance-slash-exile, leaving his second wife and son behind. Oh, and he left literally the day after getting married and having sex with Ulupi. I mean, it is kind of weird. He was so adamant about not violating his oath of celibacy, then is convinced with barely an effort, and then skips out of town the next day. I mean... As often happens in these uh, kinds of stories, the child would not have it easy. His mother's brother hated him, mostly because he hated the kid's father. I mean, yeah, I get it, thinking that your sister's husband is awful, but what did the kid do? Anyway, when the child grows up, he decides to go out and search for his father, and decides that the first place to search is the realm of his paternal grandfather, Indra, the king of the godlike divas, the land of Indraloka. Now, I need to backtrack just a little to tell of what Iravan's father, Arjuna, was up to while he was growing up with his mother in the realm of Nagaloka. Arjuna continued his life traveling in the great forest and would marry two other women. The first of these would be yet another warrior princess. He had a type. With whom he would also have a child. But instead of running off after a day, he stayed living with her for three years. The fourth and final wife would actually be a half-sister of Krishna. These two would also have a child, but only after Arjuna returned from his exile, bringing the fourth wife along with him. It must have been a super awkward homecoming. The texts do say that this last wife and his first did become like sisters. So I suppose all's well that ends well? Now back to Irivan. So he found himself in the divine land of Idraloka, and there was able to finally meet his father, Arjuna. He introduced himself as his son, and the two embraced and had a lovely visit with each other. I feel that this is really just glossing over some abandonment issues that the young Irvon must have had. But, so anyhow, um, Arjuna decided to send his son on his way. But before the young man left, Arjuna had him swear to join him in battle. When the battle takes place, I will require your assistance. 
The son simply replied, When I receive your word, I will come to help you. Now, tensions were rising between the two families, as the separation of the realm into two kingdoms was just not working out so well. In an attempt to stave off a terrible war, Krishna travels to the kingdom of Kastinapura, the lands of the rival Kauravas family. As a divine representative of the Pandavas brothers, he is nonetheless insulted heavily in the rival kingdom. There are threats to arrest the god, all in the knowledge that those kinds of actions will lead directly to war. In the end, both sides really want to rule over a united Kuru kingdom. Arjuna has his Krishna at his side as the battle is about to commence. Krishna acts as the charioteer, driving divine horses that fly into battle. The powers of these creatures is pretty amazing, as their footfalls, though in the air, have the power to level armies. Iravan will now be called to aid his father in overthrowing the Korobus family. Like his father, Iravan was a skilled archer, but also was pretty handy with the sword. He fought against many soldiers of the opposing side, having spears hurled at him, and unlike stormtroopers in Star Wars, these guys could aim. He was struck time and time again by the ferocious barrage. He did not fall, however, as he just kept going, pulling the spears from his body and returning the deadly missiles back to those who had initially launched them. Unlike Irabon, these soldiers were not so strong. They did succumb to the spears and the slashing of his sword. Arms and legs were removed from their bodies. It was a pretty gruesome sight, to be sure. Only one of these soldiers would survive and escape, but only just barely. The Kuravas commander saw the power of his rivals and sent Prince Alambusha to battle against Irivan. Now, this guy was no ordinary prince. He had mystical powers of his own. He was able to conjure forth illusions of thousands of horses, upon which rode a cavalry of his soldiers as they went forth to kill Irivan. They were also unsuccessful, just as the first group of soldiers had been. Even with magical powers, the son of Arjuna was too powerful to fall under his enemy's sword. Alambusha still had more tricks up his sleeve, however. He fired blood-sucking arrows now at Irivan. Each one was diced into pieces, never coming into contact with his body. Even Alambusha's bow would be destroyed by the superpowered prince. Now, the story has two different versions in which Irivan's uh, tale comes to an end. The first story tells that the two battling princes would rise now into the air, each facing each other in divine hand-to-hand -hand combat. With each limb cut away from Irivan's body, it would become regenerated, confounding the enemy. So, Alambusha's next trick would have to be better than just swinging a sword while floating in midair. Here is where Power Rangers probably got their inspiration, because the dastardly Alambusha grew now in size, towering over his opponent. If he could not slash up Irivan, he could at least outsize him and then capture him. The Korovas side had lost thousands already to this powerful Pandavas. 
In true deus ex machina fashion, Irivan's mother sent forth a massive celestial serpent to take on the giant who was trying to destroy her son. They would battle now, but the serpent could not defeat the giant Alambusha, and in a flash, he slashed into the air, severing Irivan's head from his shoulders. The young Irivan was killed, and the Pandavas were in a state of shock. Their enemies were encouraged by the mystical battle that had finally ended in their favor. Now, that of course is only one story of Irivan during this 18-day war. There is another that is heavily embraced by the Tamil people, and it does include this part, but there's a little more fun context. In this version of the Mahabharata, magic would again be needed to battle against the Kuravas. A ritual, known as the Kalipali, would need to be performed during the new moon. What is this ritual, you may be wondering? Well, it was only finding the most brave of your warriors and sacrificing them to Kali, the goddess of death and destruction. Only with this ritual performed could the Pandavas achieve victory and unite the kingdoms, at least under their rule. The problem is that the Kauravas had asked the same of Iravan. They wanted him to sacrifice himself for them. I'm not sure why they picked him, but it seems like poor Iravan was just screwed all the way around. It is at this moment that everyone's favorite blue-skinned deity steps in to come up with a clever plan. Unfortunately, it would not be a last-minute salvation for this son of Arjuna. Nope. He had to be sacrificed. But it was all about ensuring he was sacrificed for the right side. Krishna went to have a little tete-a-tete with the sun and moon deities. The plan was to have the new moon happen a day earlier than it would have ordinarily. This would satisfy, satisfy both sides for some weird divine reason, but in the end, totally favor the Pandavas. So, with that bit of trickery established, it was now to get the young Iravan to do the deed. Now, Iravan had some requests of his own. He wished to be granted three boons by Krishna. The first being to die a heroic death in service to his father's war effort. The second boon was to see the battle with his own eyes for the entire duration of the war, which would be 18 days. Now the third is where we start to dip our toes into some queer territory. The third boon was to be married before he had to sacrifice himself. After all, he was unwed and most likely had not had the chance to enjoy any sexy liaisons yet. Whatever was Krishna to do to grant these wishes? Well, Krishna now went in search of a woman who would be able to marry the young warrior prince. The only problem he kept running into after talking to this, these women was that they really did not want to become widows. The ritual could not be fulfilled without making a woman a widow. Again, the deity was in a bit of a pickle over how to pull off this set of miracles that was growing increasingly more complex as time went on. Krishna knew exactly what he had to do. 
if he could not find a woman to marry this guy and have a little roll in the hay, he would have to do it himself. So Krishna now transformed himself into his female version, Mohina, the goddess of enchantment. Now, in the form of this seductress, she comes to Iravan, and the two are married and spend the night together before the sacrifice. The next day, after the post-coital glow is still fresh on the newlywed couple's faces, Iravan rises up to do what he must. He has a ritual sacrifice to perform. So he removes his armor and proceeds to start cutting away his own flesh. In the end, his head is the only thing left intact upon his denuded skeleton. In understandable anguish, he calls out to his grandfather, who appears before him as a serpent and covers the stripped bones in his coils, becoming a second skin. And now it's off to battle against Alambusha. And it goes the same as the previous ending. His head would be severed from his body due to the serpentine body of his grandfather being unable to protect him. The severed head is now able to witness the remaining days of the war, but his super-powered exploits are over. His wife-slash-cousin, the goddess Mohina, is distraught, beating her breasts and tearing her bridal clothing off of her body. After she mourns her now-dead husband, she returns to her male form as Krishna. In the end, the Pandavas are successful in the war, with the eldest brother being crowned the king of the now united lands. So this is where trans folks come into the story. Every year, there is a festival in remembrance of this sacrifice by Iravan and the mourning of his gender-switching wife. The festival is 18 days long, and at its end, the beheading and mourning are reenacted. The Elise or Hijra, which are traditional transgender women who have been a part of Hindu society for un uncounted millennia, they're dressed in bridal attire and go through the ritual. They are themselves the wives of Iravan and manifestations of Krishna and Mohina. They are wed in an elaborate ceremony to the soon-to-be-beheaded Iravan. After that, they go off to consummate their marriage in a night of celebration and sexual promiscuity. At the end of the festival, they do just as Mohini had done, tearing away their wedding finery, and with disheveled hair they beat at their breasts, mourning the death of their husband. They then all go on to wear white saris that are traditional for widows. A month after this mourning process, they'll go back to wearing their regularly brightly colored saris that would ordinarily be worn. So, if you come upon a statue of Iravan, he will often be represented as only a severed head with curved fangs, which recall his mother's family of serpentine people. Although there are some representations that do not include these pretty scary-looking teeth. The majority do. Now his eyes will stare out angrily, as his would have when they witnessed the last days of the war. So, I hope all of you enjoyed this little stroll through the Mahabharata and some of Hinduism's oldest stories. 
With all of its variety, it is no surprise that trans folks have, through the millennia, been able to look at the tales of this text and find some support and meaning in their lives. Now I hope you are also able to as well. It is a complex story, and in truth, I was only able to just lightly graze the surface of it. If your interest has been piqued, take a look at the Mahabharata and other Hindu texts. They are full of interesting stories and a little bit of wisdom as well. That is the end now for me. I need to close down this little episode. I look forward to having another awesome bit of history and culture for all of you queer history enthusiasts for next Wednesday. As always, come visit the Instagram page at A History Most Queer, and you can see the fearsome face of the beheaded Erevan. If you want to send a message to me, the email address is ahistorymostqueer at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Also, I would love it if you rated this podcast and tell your friends about it. They might love to hear about this episode and others. I'd like to also give a special thanks to Pixabay for fun sound effects and music. Until the next History Hump Day, I bid you a heartfelt bye-bye. Whip, 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 whip,